this morning as we continue in our missions focus. We're thrilled to welcome to the pulpit Scott Sauls. Scott is the senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville. Before taking that position, he planted churches in St. Louis and Kansas City and was also one of the preaching pastors at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. He has written two books, Jesus Outside the Lines and Befriend, both of which deal with how we can graciously and winsomely reach out to the culture in which we find ourselves living in today. I became friends with Scott through a pastor's gathering that meets once a year in his, his church in Nashville. A group of pastors get together and share the, the joys and the sorrows of the work and encourage one another along the path. And through that time, I've just really grown to appreciate him. I really enjoy his books, but I really enjoy him more. And so he's a good man, and I'm glad that he's taken the time to be with us today. So let's welcome him to the pulpit. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, greetings from Nashville. You know we have a lot of uh, crossover between our cities and our churches. There's actually this um, odd phenomenon, beautiful phenomenon in Nashville right now where we're getting major migration from East Coast and West Coast. Uh, that includes Washington, D.C., so we thank you for that. Uh, we also uh, now employ Derek Harris, who is our, uh, he's our pastor of uh, junior and, and senior high, and, and I know um, that stirs the affection of, of a lot of you all. So greetings from Derek as well. Um, I, too, have really appreciated uh, my friendship with, with James that started uh, a couple of uh, years ago through this, this group that we're, uh, we're part of, uh, and um, you know, James is one of those people who makes me uh, really excited and optimistic about the future, not only of, um, of our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, but also uh, the future of uh, the kingdom of God in global cities and in cities of influence like your city and mine. So uh, grateful to be here uh, with you this morning. My assignment has been to, uh, or is to uh, speak on the subject of engaging and uh, what I'd like to do is uh, turn us to uh, the scriptures and, and a picture of dysfunctional engagement that the Apostle Paul is seeking to confront with his young protege, Pastor Timothy, uh, in hopes that we will become more healthy uh, in the way that we engage with one another and with the world. So uh, let's start uh, in verse 3 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining... Uh, the, imagining that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So, I'm going to start uh, by talking about the culture of outrage in which we find ourselves uh, in this season of history and, and, and in this part of the world. And I, I think uh, there are a few who have expressed sentiment 
uh, about this culture of outrage that we find ourselves in more poignantly than the New York Times' Tim Kreider, uh, who talked about the modern epidemic uh, by using the term outrage porn. So, think about it. Here's what he says. So many letters to the editor at the New York Times and comments on the internet have this tone of thrilled vindication. These are people who have been vigilantly on the lookout for something to be offended by. Some part of us loves feeling right and wronged. It's outrage porn, selected specifically to pander to our impulse to judge and punish, to get us off on righteous indignation. So, few places in the world uh, are at the center of this outrage epidemic more than towns like yours, right here on the outskirts of Washington, D.C., the capital of our nation. So let's see if I can help you feel all the feelings right now as we get started. I imagine I will make a few friends and a few enemies just by voicing these words and not taking a side with any of them. Conservative politics, liberal politics, black lives matter, all lives matter, LGBTQ plus rights, Religious freedom, more regulation, less regulation, greedy banks, lazy ghettos, Mexican border, sanctuary city, protect Obamacare, repeal Obamacare, make America great again. America is already great. I could go on. Pick your subject. But what I want to suggest today is that Scripture invites us not to disengage from these subjects, but to engage in them differently. In a way that is counterculture versus a product, another product of the outrage culture that we're in right now. And so my thesis today is this. Because the grace of God is true, because God delights in being kind to the undeserving, because God, while we were still his enemies, sent his son in love to die for us, because grace is true, Christians of all people in the world should be the most difficult to offend and the least offensive people in the whole wide world. And so I'd like to talk about that under three headings, engaging each other inside the church, engaging our neighbors outside of the church, and then, of course, engaging Jesus. So engaging each other. Did you notice in verses 4 and 5, Paul talked about how there are people inside the New Testament church who craved controversy and quarrels. They weren't just embroiled in controversy and quarrels. They they got excited about controversy and quarrels. They were looking for a fight. And he talks about constant friction that was a dynamic inside some New Testament churches. What he's talking about is sibling 
discord inside the body of Christ. He's talking about how the people of Jesus were contradicting by the way that they were living their lives and by the way that they were relating to one another even, contradicting the longest recorded prayer that we have from Jesus in which Jesus prayed about our witness to the world and identified one of the fundamental marks of the Christian witness to the world as being able to live together as one across the lines of all kinds of differences, political differences, socioeconomic differences, sociopolitical differences, racial and ethnic differences, denominational differences, um, national differences, and so on. Because Jesus is called to himself not a person, but a people. Not individual tribes, but, but a whole global collective of tribes together under one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Our unity is a sign to the world that the gospel is true. That people who cannot find a way to get along in the world without Christ are loving one another inside of Christ. For the sake of Christ. So, um, you know, speaking of politics, this was, um, this was about 12 years ago. This was at a church that I was pastoring at the time. And we were right in the middle of another heated presidential election cycle. And a man in our church approached me after one of my sermons on Sunday and he just wanted to relay an anecdote about something that happened in his small group during this political season, right? He says, so as our small group was meeting last week, one of the women in our small group got really excited um, about uh, her sense that, 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 that there were a lot of people coming to our church that don't identify with Jesus, that wouldn't call themselves Christians, and yet are still nonetheless coming to our church in order to hear the gospel. And somebody in the group said, well, who did you meet? Tell us about them. And she said, well, I didn't actually meet anybody, but I did notice several bumper stickers in the parking lot uh, that are supporting the other side uh, in this election. And my, my friend said to me, you know, Pastor, I, I need some counsel from you. I need to, you know, discern whether or not it would be right for me to tell her and the rest of the group that one of those bumper stickers was mine. Majoring in the minors and minoring in the majors. It's as old as time. You know, one of my predecessors at Christ Presbyterian in Nashville, Charles McGowan, says that sound doctrine is like the skeleton of our Christianity. You have to have a skeleton in order for there to be a structure for, you know, that, that, that holds and supports the rest of the body. Without the skeleton, uh, you're just a glob. With the skeleton, you have a structure and you can move around and, and, and live your life. But, he says, if the skeleton is the main thing that you can see in a person's body, it means one of two things. Either that person is severely malnourished and sick or they're dead. The same is true with our sound theology. If our watertight, sound, biblical doctrine is the only thing or even the main thing that people experience in our Christianity, it means we're either spiritually malnourished and sick or dead. It means we're just like the devil of hell. 
devil's got great theology. Even the demons believe, the scriptures tell us, and they shudder. Why? Because they're not surrendered to it. But they got, it, they got their doctrines right. Pharisees had their doctrines right. And Jesus, you know, referred to them as whitewashed tombs and, and, and as hypocrites and as, as, you know, dead people, dead men walking. You know, even the beloved Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 13, says, you know, you can, you can prophesy the Word of God with, with unbelievable artistry and, and wisdom and sound theology but if you have not love, you have nothing, and you are nothing. And this is really what Paul is getting at. That the pulse of healthy doctrine is this wonderful word, agape, which incidentally is the same word that Jesus uses when he says, love your enemies. Don't just be the best kinds of friends with each other. Be the best kinds of enemies to, to, the, to the people out in the world to the end or, or with the goal that you don't have any enemies because you're such a great enemy. Because you take better care of the world than the world does. Because you respond to the, the world's sorrows better than the world responds to the world's sorrows. The pulse of healthy doctrine is a life of love. Key indicator. There are people who do not believe the things that you do. Who like you and want to be like you. And they tell you that. Positive examples from scripture just inside the kingdom. One of the greatest friendships in the history of the world, David and Jonathan. Who's David? He's the, the young son of an obscure shepherd, unknown to anybody. Seventh son, last son in, in, in a long line of, of shepherd sons. And Jonathan, who is the firstborn son of a king, a prince, lives his life in privilege. They're the best of friends uh, because of their shared uh, affinity uh, for and love for and surrender to Yahweh. Or politics. Any examples of left and right getting along in the Bible? Show me where that's in the Bible. Let's start with Jesus' 12 disciples. Where we have over here on the far right, Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were the libertarians of their day. The less government, the better. And then over here, on the left, Matthew the tax collector. Not only a government employee, but the worst kind in those days. And yet these two brothers, even though we have no indication that either of them ever disassociated from their politics, walked together as brothers, lived together, served together, ate together, died together. In recognition every day that they served a greater king in a greater kingdom of a king whose kingdom is not, never has been, and never will be of this world. And, and, and which of the four gospel writers was it? That, that, that took great care to highlight the fact that Simon was a zealot and Matthew was a tax collector. Only one of the gospel writers emphasized the unity amidst the difference. And it was Matthew himself. You, you ever consider how Paul starts most of his letters? You know the history behind these two words, grace to you and peace 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you was the standard salutation in those days in a letter written by a Greek person to a Greek person, by a Gentile to a Gentile. Peace to you was the standard salutation in a letter written by a Jew to a Jew. And, and, and so the beginning of, of most of his letters, Paul is putting right in front of his readers this known, long-standing, historic hostility. Jews and Gentiles, they didn't associate with each other, they didn't like each other, they didn't trust each other, they had different race, different politics, lived on different sides of the tracks, different views of the world, and so on. And and what Paul is saying here is, Jew to you and Gentile, Trump to you and Hillary, Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter to you, Mexican border and sanctuary cities to you, to you, to all of you, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you dare, in other words, Paul says at the beginning of every one of his letters, don't you dare presume or to to, to have the arrogance to dismiss or reject or disdain somebody that Jesus loves and that Jesus includes And that Jesus embraces. So I'm told that, you know, sometime before I assumed the senior pastor role at at the church that I'm part of now, Christ Presbyterian, uh, that Dr. R.C. Sproul, who's a well-known theologian in the Reformed tradition, uh, spoke at a conference at at our church. And uh, in his conversations... Uh, some of the differences between what he believes about how the gospel works in people's lives and and what Billy Graham believes about how the gospel works in people's lives, the differences between those two approaches were highlighted in in a number of his talks. And and during the Q&A section, which I I suppose we'll have something similar tonight, maybe we can talk about this if you would like, In the Q&A section, somebody raised their hand and said, Dr. Sproul, do you believe that you will see Billy Graham in heaven? Gotcha question, right? And his swift answer was, no, I don't. I don't believe that I will see Billy Graham in heaven. And of course, there's this collective gasp, and he says, wait a minute, allow me to explain myself. The reason why I answer in this way is because I believe that Billy Graham will be so close to the throne of God and I will be so far away that I won't get a glimpse of him. And I'll be lucky that I do. So just for perspective, you may or may not know this, but if you're part of McLean Presbyterian, you're part of this tribe uh, called Reformed Presbyterian. Here's the truth of the matter. Reformed Presbyterians represent less than 1% of the global Christian community. Less than 1%, which means there are all kinds of siblings in Jesus around the world who have a different experience, a different perspective than we will on a number of things. And, and rather than being people to correct and, 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 and distance ourselves from, we're, we're talking about a, a, a global family that we can learn and benefit from. Where would I be, for instance, without C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis, who 
sees things differently than I do in, in, in similar ways that Billy Graham and R.C. Sproul see things about how the, the gospel works in a person's life. And yet, what would I be as a minister trying to engage secular culture with the true relevance of the gospel of Jesus Christ without C.S. Lewis? What would I do without my wife, Patty, and my two daughters? You know, I grew up in, a, in an almost all-boys home. One mom, bunch of boys, even the dog was a boy. Now I live in an ocean of estrogen. I have, you know, a wife, two daughters, and even the dog is a girl. And, and I watch the Gilmore Girls now, sometimes by myself. And that is something I would have never done without the impact, the influence of the female gender in my own home and, and I've come to love Stars Hollow and everything that Stars Hollow represents. But without that perspective that my wife and my daughters bring t- to me, I would be more rough around the edges. I would be less tender, less thoughtful, less sensitive, probably a bully without their influence in my life. What would I do without Ronnie Mitchell, African-American pastor, other side of town, He's about 20 years my senior, married to the same woman for about 45 years, pastor of the same church for about 40. Uh, he and his parishioners are all systematically being gentrified out of the community that they've grown up in for generations. His congregants vote differently than my congregants do because his congregants experience life and power and politics in a very different way than my congregants experience life and power and politics. If I don't sit under his feet, then I remain an outlier to what the Bible says the Christian experience is normally. Because in the scriptures, if we read the Psalms, if we, if we trace the New Testament, if we look at the, you know, Pharaoh's Egypt and, 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 and the people of Israel in Pharaoh's Egypt and, and the people of Israel, you know, in, in captivity to Babylon or to Assyria and so on, we see an oppressed people. We see in a people who are, who are used, used to losing in the world, not to winning. And so without being in a relationship in which I am the chief learner, I will never connect with the full biblical experience if I don't position myself to be mentored and tutored by somebody who experiences power and politics differently than I do. I have the luxury of dismissing politics. He doesn't. He needs politics in order to eat. What would I do without Jonathan Edwards who whose theology on fire is such a profound devotional impact on me, even though we have different perspective on church government. What would I do without Brennan Manning, the Roman Catholic, who's taught me more about grace than any Protestant ever has? What would I do without Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who reminds me that when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die? That Christianity is not a networking opportunity. Christianity is a cross that you take up daily as you follow Jesus into the hard and broken places. See, what the power of the gospel does, among other things, is it it empowers us to overcome partisan attitudes of all kinds. And we get to work those things out first among one another as family, as siblings, as those who share the inheritance 
that Christ has secured for us. But how about engaging our neighbor? So did you know that in, in order to qualify to, to lead in the church of Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you have to have a good reputation with those who don't identify as Christians. You have to have a good reputation, Paul says, if you want to be an elder in the church, if you want to be a leader in the church, if you want to be a pastor, you have to have a good reputation with people who reject Jesus. Because Jesus had a good reputation with a lot of people who rejected Jesus. I'll get to that in a moment. You know, Luke chapter 15, verse 1, says it all. Jesus welcomed sinners, welcomed outsiders, and ate with them. Such a contrast, this perspective is, to the approach of the scolding Pharisees. Remember that prayer in Luke 18 where the Pharisee prays, Thank you, my God, that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, tax collectors, adulterers. I think, among many other things, what this text from the Apostle Paul teaches us or reminds us is that there are very few things in the world that corrupt the Christian witness more than Christians who scold. How many of us know people with the story, I fell in love with Jesus because a group of Christians or a Christian neighbor or what have you lectured me about my ethics, lectured me about my politics, lectured me about which cable news channel I watched, lectured me about whatever. Majoring on the minors, minoring on the majors as the salt loses its savior and as we become increasingly irrelevant. To the point where the world isn't hostile toward the church anymore. We're not even on the world's radar anymore because of this kind of stuff. Because of the ways that we've adopted the world's methods of power grabbing and scolding in order to move the kingdom forward, which is a kingdom that leads to repentance through kindness. I have never once in 19 years of being an ordained pastor and in 27 years of being a Christian, I've never met, never met a person who said I fell in love with Jesus because somebody lectured me about my ethics, about this or that. You know, when Tim Tim Keller talks about tolerance, he says this, he says healthy tolerance works like this. It's not about not having convictions. Of course, you're, you're a person of the book if, if, if you're a Christian. You're, 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 your convictions are bound to, to what the Old and Testament and New Testaments you know, pass down to you through the ages. Tolerance, Keller says, is not about not having convictions. It is about how your convictions lead you to treat people who disagree with you. What are some, how, how did the Apostle Paul, for instance, live out of conviction? Great picture of this is Acts chapter 17, when he walks into the Areopagus, which, which is essentially the, 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 uh, um, you know, the academic uh, environment of his day, the, the college professors and such. And he walks in, and, and, and he says that, it says that immediately there is a tornado that, 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 that erupts in his soul because he's looking around and, and he's seeing how this city of Athens is filled with idols. It is filled with counterfeit expressions of the one true God. 
And it's destroying people and it's destroying societies. And so his soul is in turmoil. And the way that that turmoil expresses itself is this. First, through a compliment. Men of Athens, I perceive that you're very religious. He starts with what they share in common. We are both pursuing truth, beauty, meaning. What it means to flourish as a human being in a broken world. So, I affirm that. And then he goes on in in his speech to them to quote from memory. Because he'd studied the culture just as much as he'd studied the scriptures. He quotes from memory. Pagan, secular philosophers and poets. Recognizing that because all people are made in the image of God. All people have expressions of truth and expressions of beauty in their vernacular and in their worldview. And so I'm going to cherry pick what's good and true and beautiful out of here as our starting point. I'm going to cherry pick the things that we can affirm and agree upon together. You know, Paul is affirmational and and, and a bridge builder. and, And that's what prepares the relational soil for him to be able to then say some hard things. Jesus is no different when he encounters the adulteress, the sexual minority, as we would call her in today's vernacular. Did you ever notice that Jesus, there's no record of Jesus scolding a sexual minority or encouraging his people to scold sexual minorities or to get all prophetic on the sexuality thing? If you want to promote biblical marriage, guess what? Here's how to do it. Have a biblical marriage. Have a biblical marriage in which you're, you're serving each other faithfully. Where you're holding hands to the end. Where you're 20 years into marriage and you're still kissing each other every day. Where you're speaking well of each other instead of getting cynical about each other. Have a biblical marriage. And then the world might be interested in what you have to say about what constitutes a biblical marriage. Jesus never scolded sexual minorities. He approached them with such tenderness because their wound was a a uniquely transcendent wound. And so as all the church elder types, all of the the professional clergy are are wanting to put her to death for the crime that she was caught in the act of, it's always baffled me why the man wasn't treated in the same way. We don't even know who the man was. He's not even brought into the scene. Maybe he was one of them holding the rocks. Jesus' words to her in this order, I do not condemn you. Now, let's talk about your ethics. Now, leave your life of sin. Now, pursue the path of life and the path of health and and wholeness. I do not condemn you. Now, leave your life of sin. Reverse the order of those two sentences and you lose Christianity and you lose Christ. But keep them in their right order. And you become the kind of person who, with Jesus, invites people to belong with you before they believe with you. And who invites people into your embrace before they agree with you and whether they ever agree with you. Because after all, we're not just called to be the best kinds of friends to each other. We're called to be the best kinds of enemies with those who who don't identify with Jesus such that we would have no enemies. It's so liberating to be able to treat people this way. 
And to not to, to, not to feel like we have to walk out into the world and ask ourselves, what stand am I going to take today for the Lord? That was the Pharisees' question when they started their day. None of us wants the verdict that the Pharisees got, do we? The measure of, or at least a measure of faithful Christian witness is how able are we to profoundly disagree because of our firm biblical convictions and deeply love at the same time across the lines of difference. So I'll tell you a little story as I get close to wrapping it up here. man named Bill, this is one of our church plants in Kansas City. man named Bill walked into church. Nobody knew who he was. We still to this day don't know how he found us. Um, reeking of nicotine. Um, you know, just guzzling one cup of coffee after another, you know, during the singing. And this guy comes up to me who's a member of the church. I'll call him the church guy. He taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, pastor, do you see that man over there? I said, yes, I do. And he says, well, you know, the way he's sipping on that coffee and the way he's all smelling like cigarettes and stuff, he's a distraction to my worship. And, 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 and because he's a distraction to my worship and probably to other people's worship, do you want me to deal with it? And I said, let me deal with this one. Um, and, and, and turns out that Bill was coming off of a heroin addiction. He also had streaks up and down his arms. And he'd been clean from heroin for about a month. And they were looking for a church because somebody told him that being part of a church might help them in their journey. So his wife was also coming off of a heroin addiction. And um, you know, so that raises the question for me. You know, you smell like nicotine, but you're coming off of a heroin addiction. What do you call that? I call that an upgrade. I call that a good trajectory. I call that Jesus at work. There was also an episode that same morning with his wife. Her name is Anne. And she was dropping their two boys off in the nursery. And Short story is their boys picked a bunch of fights, bloodied a few noses, broke a bunch of toys, uh, you know, made a disaster out of the nursery experience that morning. And so, so afterwards, when she came to pick up her boys, of course, one of the workers, this guy in the nursery said, hey, sorry, you know, no harm, no foul, but there have been a lot, a lot of harm and a lot of fouls in the last, you know, hour and 15 minutes or so. And, and immediately she got this defeated look that, that it just was filled with shame and she didn't have to say it, but what, what, what her body language was saying is, I, I have screwed up again. I am a screw-up. That's all I am. And she, she walks out, you know, with, with, with you know, what we would call the walk of shame, you know, come on, boys, and then Bill's behind her with his 18th cup of coffee, you know, just... And so somebody in the nursery had the wherewithal to ask for her mailing address, and thankfully they'd sign the sheet and everything. And, and uh, so this person in the nursery sent her... A note, and the note said, Dear Anne, thank you for the most refreshing experience I've ever had in a church. Because the church is where we're supposed to be honest, and the church is where we're supposed to vomit our, our brokenness and our struggle and, and the messiness that's inside. We're, the church is the, the place where we're supposed to be safe to do that because we're all umbrellaed by a, by a very, very safe Savior in Jesus who loves to forgive us and who loves to walk with us in our journeys and so on. 
who loves us to meet, loves to meet us in those messy, hard places. And so, of course, the next week, you know, Anne shows up with a swag because, you know, and she's walking in, you know, she, she's walking the walk of shame the week before, she's walking in like she owns the place. So the short of the story is that within, you know, because of that act of love, because, because of the I do not condemn you verdict, uh, by the way, you know, that day when her kids beat up a bunch of other kids, she screamed out, shoot, as loud as she could, except replace two vowels with one, in front of all these little children and, and their parents. And then to get a note like that, and, and, and you know, a life-giving, I do not condemn you. We don't. Um, that made her, you know, even more motive. You didn't even have to tell her to leave her life of sin. Why would she want anything else for herself with, with that kind of love, after that kind of behavior? And short story is that in two, year, two years after that, she became, Anne became the nursery director of the church. She was a very bad one. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's beside the point. The point is this. It's what Madeline Lingle said. We draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe or by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they will want with all their hearts to know the source of it. Another way of putting it is, the more conservative you are about your Bible, the more you believe that every word of it is true, the more liberal you will be in the way that you love other people. The more you are truly on the narrow path with Jesus, the broader your embrace will become. Speaking of Jesus, engaging Jesus. Little nutshell point here, but it's the most important. Before we pray. Our basis for leading with kindness, both inside the church and outside the church. Our basis for being generous and and for having a broader embrace because of the narrow path that we're on is that the outrage of God the Father was, was directed away from us and redirected toward His Son on the cross so that we would never have to taste a drop of it. Not when we were at our best, not when we were at our most virtuous, but while we were still sinners, while we were hostile, while we were His enemies, while we were screaming the S word in front of the children. That is when Christ died for us. Furthermore, America is not, never has been, and never will be the center of the Christian story. Jesus grew up right down the road from Syria. Jesus was a child refugee. Jesus was not the pretty long-haired, blue-eyed, white guy that you see in the films and in the children's Bibles who looked like he could have been been a member of the Bee Gees. (laughs) Jesus was a first century Middle Eastern Jew, dark skin, economically poor all of his life, homeless the good part of his adult life, never spoke a word of English, never stepped foot on American soil. And yet he was thinking of us. Privileged people. Who don't really understand what the Christian experience really is firsthand. We don't know what it means to be oppressed. We don't know what it means to need the political system in ways that some do so that we can eat. And yet he thought of us and included us. He didn't define us or label us as them, but made us part of his us. If this doesn't transform us into kind-hearted people of peace, what will?
And in the spirit of all this, I'm going to close this now in a prayer from St. Francis, a Roman Catholic, who got it right on these things. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in dying that we are born again to eternal life. Thanks be to God. Amen.